You're listening to Go with Jamarl and Martin. We have a go harder, go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have uh, a special guest, Tony Effick, the SVP of Client Strategy at NBC Universal. He's also a marketing professor at Columbia University. How's it going, Tony? I'm good, Jamarl, and always good to see you, brother. We met at a Digiday programmatic conference in uh, Austin, Texas. Do you remember that? That was it. I was yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, it was I think we've met online first, though. We've been chatting on Twitter and stuff. A lot has transpired since then. You've made the jump from the agency, ad agency side, to working for a company like NBC Universal. Uh, talk about that transition. Yeah, it's um, funnily enough that the discipline, the thing I do day to day, hasn't changed radically. It's still the same skills I learned over the last 20 25 years um but i just got a different toolbox right now you see what i'm saying so basically in a in in an agency particularly in a creative agency and i've had different kinds of jobs in creative agencies um you the main tool you're playing with is essentially the talent around you do you see what i'm saying so the talent is the creative people around you the media people around you the account people the production people and what you're trying to do is orchestrate a strategy for a client based on the talent of those people. So you go in, a a client has a problem, and you say, okay, well, let's dig into that, and we'll come up with an answer to how to drive sales for you. And you come up with an ad, yeah? Um, The difference with what I do now is that there's a little bit of that in my job today, because we have um, production and creative facilities, but fundamentally our assets are our TV networks, our film studios, our theme parks, our digital properties. So it's, um, you know, how do you want to work of the Olympics? How do you want to work of SNL or the Tonight Show or uh, or the Today Show? Um, are you going to do something in the theme park? So we basically right now we're thinking a lot about how we activate for clients across the portfolio. How big is the advertising uh, portfolio within NBCU that you know you advise on uh, in terms of the strategy there? Yeah, I, I'm not going to give specifics, but it's in the billions, many, many billions yeah, of dollars. Billions. Yeah, yeah, many billions. It's the biggest portfolio in the marketplace. You're coming from uh, RGA, uh, one of the leading digital advertising uh, agencies with over 300 million uh, billings uh, at the time you were there. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. in comparison, yeah. <laughs> it was like uh, yeah. d- dropping the ocean in, com- in comparison. But um, it's a very different business model, very, very different business model. The businesses have a very different rhythm. If you're on an agency, you're hustling every week. You know yeah. what I mean? Because you got you got to keep the meter ticking because you got to keep clients happy. You got to keep billable. That's the yeah. that's the currency. Is that, are you billable? Um, and so people are filling out timesheets every week, trying to say, "What did I do last week? <laughs> you know, um, was I useful? Was I not useful? Does a client want this work? Does a client don't don't want this work?" Where we are right now is so different. So right now, what we're doing is more of an annual cycle. We need to shift a huge oil tanker, man. I mean, it's like a big company, and we're moving bit by bit in a radical transformation. You know, and. Um, the business is moving so quickly and we're, we're moving as quickly as we possibly can. So it's exciting. It's exciting being, you know, in this job, yeah. at this moment, in this company, at such an important phase yeah. in the industry. For our audience, uh, you're consulting or providing strategy for NBCU to go out there, make more money, bring more advertisers in. Absolutely. So, so we are looking at our traditional business. We're famous for our linear TV. But there's so much more, <laughs> so much more. So my main job is to figure out new ways of packaging up the things we have. So you might 
buy TV spots from us, but you maybe don't know you could activate in our theme parks. Yeah. You might um, work with us on Snap or on Vox, which we have investments in. You have rights to some of the uh, Snapchat and Vox Media uh, inventory. Yeah, yeah. Well, and we have a stake in both of those companies yeah. as well as BuzzFeed, um, and we make shows for those platforms as well. So it's a basically it's a rich portfolio, and then we have we're owned by Comcast, which has the set top box business, and so it's an interesting intersection between different ways brands can go to market cross platform, um, you know, at scale, like really big scale. So as you know, the digital media industry is one big mess. You know, you have rebate issues at the agency level. You know, media companies are lacking direction. You know, some of them thought, you know, social media and, you know, viral publishing was the answer. They got crushed on that. Facebook uh, changes the algorithms. A lot of things change. As you know, a lot of uh, publishers were crushed, those who pursued that path. Then there was this so-called pivot to video. You know, nobody's making money on a pivot to video and going all in on video. There's no real margins there, at least so far uh, for most uh, publishers. You know, where do you see all this stuff going? Uh, What's going to be sustainable? I think you might have a few ideas. (laughs) I'm pretty sure you've got a few ideas. You know, I think this is a young industry, man. I mean, how long has this been going? I think the industry is still feeling its way around about where all of this is going. And no one knows where this is all going, really, for sure. Do you think the innovation and disruption uh, cycles are going to be shorter and shorter uh, no matter, you know, where the market goes? Oh, yeah. No, I agree with that for sure, man. It's going to just more disruption, more cycles, even in something as stable as search. You know, I'm reading recently that, you know, there's a stat recently that half of all searches, product searches are now happening on Amazon, not on Google. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah. Hugely so, disrupted. Yeah. Who saw that come? I mean, if you look backwards, you can maybe see it coming, but that was that was a surprise. You know, um, we were talking about Twitter a second ago. I expected, we, we talked about Twitter quite a bit. I yeah. I kept assuming Twitter would keep going through the roof. I'm disappointed of where that company's landed. Um but with regards to brand safety and some of these issues and um, fraud and all of that kind of stuff, this was a wild west, man. It was like nobody knew what the guy next to them was doing. Nobody knew who was in between the two of them. Yeah. Nobody knew about any of this stuff. And there was a real rush. I call it, it was a gold rush. There was a gold rush to kind of, and everyone was panning for gold. Everyone's trying to find it. And no one, no one was policing. No one was really, truly checking. And so I feel that, um, you know, we've come out of that now. No, this is like, we've come out of the teenage years and now we're saying, okay, now we're grown up. This industry is grown up. So what are the things we want? And so I think what we've seen um, is that, and obviously I grew up on the other side of the fence. Now I'm working for a big entertainment company with a lot of TV and video assets. But on the other side of the fence, obviously I was pitching, <laughs> you know, come to digital. And I had a very distorted view about really the makeup of the business. But one of the things, in the big traditional media companies is the fact that they are brand safe. There's regulatory and legislative issues around yeah. putting content out there in yeah. certain ways, um, ads out there in certain ways, which doesn't exist in the digital space. So in other words, what we've seen is that the ability for legislation to keep up to date with the industry hasn't been there. And I think it took a long time for for Senate and for Congress to catch up. I know you were on that early. Yeah. <laughs> are you seeing any benefit 
where YouTube will make money on any type of content. There's a lot of brand safety issues there. They will work on Alex Jones, anything. Yeah, yeah, that's not even the worst. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Google got into some trouble, as you know. A lot of big brands were complaining uh, about why their ads were next to ISIS videos on on YouTube. Have you seen any benefit from your perspective in, in, in your role at NBC Universal, where although social media advertising is super efficient, great targeting, low prices, low CPMS, but you know, we could be next to Infowars. We could be next to Proud Boys, uh, you know, All Right Group. Uh, we don't know where our ads are, are being placed. So you're seeing a benefit in terms of how advertisers uh, are thinking now. Oh, yeah. I mean, we saw that this year. We saw that last year. I think a lot of advertisers, big advertisers, and this in the public domain, have said, look, you know, we felt the pendulum swung too far. Yeah. And then they were starting to say, okay, look, you know, We've got issues of brand safety. We've got issues of um, verification. We've got issues with um, viewability. We've got <laughs> issues with fraud. We've got issues with the overall ecosystem and things like rebates and hidden fees. Um, we also have, and this is the biggest one, we also have issues with um, effectiveness. Yeah. Is, this, is this shit working? <laughs> um, and we saw a bunch of advertisers move a bunch of money out from that part of the ecosystem, move it um, towards us. P that most famously, yeah, yeah, most famously. And many of those companies didn't really see a huge blip on their performance from what I can see in their numbers. Where do you see big value in the digital media industry right now? A segment uh, that is healthy, you know, you could see a lot more investment going through that window of opportunity. Yeah, I think there's emerging platforms and maturing platforms. So from let's do maturing platform so video clearly uh, we know that everyone does like, i know but, but what do you mean by that what i mean by that is that ultimately we know the power of the moving image okay we know sight sound emotion that that's just been with us like, like three minute facebook clips are like junk no i Why think are you talking about like uh you know web series or long like long form i i think Short form is an established thing out there. I think long form is what we're, yeah. what I'm excited to see how different platforms play that game and how they're going to play it. Um, I'm interested to see other Netflix has said they're not going to do it. I'm interested to see if Netflix starts to be ad supported. I want to see Amazon's trial around its ad supported Prime version. Um, I want to see more of the OTT players start to expand um, their yeah. platform and when they start bringing in audience data and scaling around that. I yeah. think that whole thing and the uh, intersection of traditional linear is going to be interesting to see where that all evolves. So that's yeah. what I mean by a maturing platform. And then from an emerging platform, I'm still bullish on the idea of AR and VR and where that's going to go. We've done a bunch of experiments around that. I'm seeing some interesting things around that platform. Um, that's still like five, six, seven, eight years yeah. out before that starts to be what I think it could be. But I think the the you know people have made big bets on video and and this, the the ecosystem um, has a lot of crap yes. there. <laughs> Are you looking for another great podcast? Check out Get a Grip on Life, a podcast interviewing entrepreneurs, social media influencers, content creators, stand up comedians, industry insiders, and more. 
Join host Michael Colligan as he finds out what makes these people tick as everyone tries to get a grip on life. Be sure to visit getagriponlife.com for all of their previous episodes, links to social media channels, and more. Or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Get a Grip on Life. I don't see a lot of value in digital video uh, right now. And here's why. One is there's a promiscuous amount of players out there that are doing short form video. When I say short form, I'm talking like, you know, one minute to, you know, 15 minute videos. You know, Google and Facebook are in that pot. And I'm not just talking about ISIS videos and all that stuff. But as you know, Facebook right now, uh, you know, they're a partner with uh, Jada Pinkett with her show. You know, they're doing like custom shows. YouTube is doing, uh, you know, exclusive custom shows. It's just to me, it seems like there's a glut of inventory out there and it's really hard to differentiate from an ads perspective. I just think the digital space, it's crowded and there's no real proof of a good margin, a net net. Uh, on average in the industry uh, today. Uh, A lot of people have bet on it, but nobody's really printing decent margins that I'm aware of. I think the value of digital video is going to be some type of um, subscription in terms of, you know, a Netflix, uh, Hulu. They scaled those platforms, but who's going to scale kind of the the new baby Netflixes or the baby Hulus. I think subscriptions are probably the place to bet. Part of this is if, you know, everybody's doing it, it's going to be hard for that to be the right bet. Uh, We saw that with BuzzFeed, as you know, with a lot of the viral publishers. Everyone wants to be a viral publisher and everything goes bust. But I think for players uh, looking out, you got to go where the uh, scarcity is in terms of, you know, everybody's going BuzzFeed, everybody's going viral, but nobody was going towards a New York Times subscriptions model uh, where they were building a billion dollar subscription business, people paying every month for the content quietly. They're not making a lot of noise about it. They're just doing the work with a great brand. Uh, building a billion dollar subscription business of, of revenue. But everyone, they were talking, hey, you know, you got to be social. No one goes on directly to the platforms anymore. You got to be like BuzzFeed. You got to, you know, try to exploit these uh, these social, you know, virality, blah, blah, blah. And then all that stuff crashes. Nobody was going towards the vegetable segment of the market in terms of subscriptions, healthy, sustainable, people paying uh, every month, everyone's going towards the crack, you know, just, you know, spending a lot of money on Facebook, gaming, Facebook, gaming, you know, uh, social, uh, YouTube and all that stuff crashed uh, on, a, on a lot of folks who bet on those uh, segments. Now, when you look at the marketplace uh, for subscriptions, you're seeing uh, some examples of success. That's where you're seeing actual cash flow and profits. Uh, do you agree uh, that subscriptions is going to be a bigger thing going forward and a healthier thing uh, for uh, media companies to invest in? Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just trying to press this. Like, yeah, you're making it good. No, no. I was, I was just thinking through because I think when you asked the question and, 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 I, and I talked to it, 
I think we were looking at it from different angles. So when you asked me the question, I was thinking you were talking about it from an advertiser's point of view. Because yeah. I think there's like, this is a three-legged stool, yeah? So you've got yeah. the, the publisher side, obviously that's your eye, you know yeah. what I mean? That's where you're always going to look at stuff, generally. Then you've got the advertiser side, and then you've got the consumer side. I think the consumer's loving it. Loving this, you know, explosion of video, yeah? Because if you look at the stats... Every year, those numbers go up. Consumers are consuming more and more of it across multiple platforms. That, yeah. That's rising every year. So um, that's creating demand, okay? Um, from the advertiser side, the advertisers are chasing it. They love telling those stories um, using their, their brand stories, using video. So the advertisers check. What they want, though, is some of the guarantees, the peace of mind that you get in, you know, in, in television, you know what I mean? Around yeah. viewability, brand safety, all that kind of stuff. So when you flip it and you come to the publisher side, I agree with you. It's hard to win that game yeah. when so many people are in the game. But do you remember back in the day in the search engine days? There was a lot of search engines. Remember Excite, AltaVista? Yeah. Yeah. So that search wasn't a bad business in the end. It's just that you needed a winner to emerge. Yeah. And that happened. So I think we'll see in this space winners emerge. Um, the problem I see right now, though, with the subscription model around video is that I tell you what, when I get home and I try to flick channels now, I've got my Hulu, I've got my Amazon, I've got my Netflix. I think I might have signed on to some other, a couple of other things and one for the kids. I've got too many, man. Yeah. And there's just not, and every other week there's a new one. <laughs> uh, I can't really see that level of, um, gonna have like six, seven no, I, I can't see that, man. I mean, I struggle to manage what I've got, and every other week there's a new one I find interesting, but maybe not interesting enough to keep for long. That's my view. So, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm bullish on subscriptions. I just, yeah. I feel that a, a winner will emerge, but I think you know, video everywhere and anywhere in a cleaner, more pristine environment. It's going to be big for everybody. And I know that's not... Are you seeing CPMs going up in terms of brand safe video environments? Are you you seeing downward pressure on CPMs on average uh, from an industry perspective? I think, um, well, there's a premium part to the marketplace. Yeah. And so... Let's say the premium, uh, let's say the premium layer of the marketplace. Are CPMs, you know, going up, flat, or down? What are you seeing out there? Um, We... uh, I haven't done a study of the whole marketplace, yeah. but we're pretty firm and, you know, in our numbers. You guys, you guys yeah, yeah, we're holding up our numbers. What about podcasting? Uh, the market is about $400 million a year in advertising revenue in the U.S. China is way ahead of the United States at $7 billion uh, a year, where, you know, most of the podcast revenue in China is actually subscription-based. Uh, and I was reading about podcast subscribers in China and they were interviewing a subscriber to a podcast. And, you know, he's like, hey, if the podcast is helping my life, you know, I love the the personality. Uh, why wouldn't I pay ten dollars uh, a month? You know, essentially subscription podcast is blowing up in China and you have this combination of podcasts kind of, you know, growing at a nice clip uh, globally as a medium and then you have subscriptions uh, working for more and more publishers. And when you combine those two, I just find that 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 idea very uh, interesting. I love it. I mean, yeah. I, I was I, I was late to the podcasting yeah. thing, um, but now I'm you know, I mean, my morning journey 
uh, used to be music, Subway, and now it's podcast Subway. Yeah, it's, Do you see what I'm saying? And yeah. then I'm, I'm finding more and more moments where I, you know, I, I, you know, if I'm doing kind of like chores in the kitchen or something yeah. like that, I've got a podcast on. Chilling, I've got a podcast on. So, and even now I'm kind of, there are certain kids pod, podcasts, there's an NPR one that the kids love. So I'm finding moments for all of this stuff and yeah. I love it. And I think it's just going to keep going. Do you remember years back I was, I wasn't thinking about podcasts, but I was talking about radio. Remember I kept saying yeah, to you, yeah, you should yeah, buy a radio yeah, station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I felt that that, it was, in my mind, it was that space that was yeah. unoccupied. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Audio, yeah. Were, Audio, were yeah, yeah. Would you say that one of the reasons, at least based on my checks, the CPMs in the podcasting space are healthy on average, uh, in some cases, you know, 50 to $100 uh, CPMs, you know, is podcast benefiting from the fact that Google and Facebook, their greedy, monopolistic hands are not in the podcast pot yet uh, in terms of monetization? What are some of the, the challenges you see with the podcast market scaling? A lot of people I see online are like, I'm launching a podcast. Everyone's launching a podcast. Every week, someone has a new podcast now. Do you see a bubble? You know, don't bet on this because everybody, the pizza delivery guy, everybody, the guy at the bank has a, 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 his own uh, or her own podcast. Uh, so some people, uh, you know, will see this and say, hey, it looks like there's a there's a bubble. There's a lot of froth in the market. There's too many players rushing into podcasting. And that's kind of a, a contrarian signal to to, to be cautious. Uh, let's take a step back. You know, can you bring all that together? I think the thing about bubbles anyway. So let's say, even let's say worst case here is a bubble. Let's say it was um, it's like you talk about housing bubbles. Yeah. Okay, you talk about stock bubbles, like particularly housing bubbles. The buildings are still left there afterwards, yeah? They're still buildings yeah. after the bubble. Yeah. And so for me, I think with this, regardless of whether it's a bubble, um, there is a new behavior right there of people filling their moments and their time with content that they love yeah. that is specific to their needs, yeah? It's like the more there is, the more choice, the more choice, the more you like you to find something that suits exactly you. As long as that need gets established, it's always going to be there. Because someone yeah. will want to support and fulfill that. So here's my thing. I don't actually think it's a bubble. I think um, certainly not a bubble yet from a revenue point of view, because I still feel there's room. Um, is it a bubble yet from a consumption point of view? I mean, what proportion of the population is regularly consuming podcasts? There's still, still plenty of room, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So I just um, see a lot of room for the audience to keep on going over over to podcasts and then also the 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 radio and digital advertising money to move more and more and get more comfortable over um on the podcast side that's going to balance that surely and we're going to start seeing uh, we already started seeing big networks of podcast publishers and you start to see some m&a activity of course and then you're going to start seeing the radio, I mean, like, if you take NPR um, as an example, they're, they're big into podcasts, they're big into radio. Um, so I think you're going to start getting these cross-platform audio-based networks. We've already seen that. We've got audibles in the background that doesn't go into radio and stuff like that. But you're going to start seeing the intersection of all of this. And then, <laughs> ain't your favorite subject, but then if you look at Spotify and the play they're doing a the video... And then you think about streaming services, Pandora. Yeah, I Spotify, think a- they're doing exclusive deals now. 
you know, they signed Joe Button. Uh, I think it was a million dollar number. If I'm correct, don't hold me to it. Uh, you know, you are starting to see Tidal and Spotify wanting to do exclusive podcast stuff. I would say that I'm bullish is because whether you're going through the subscription window with Spotify uh, and Spotify uh, paying money to the podcast host directly or, or Tidal uh, having exclusive podcasts and paying money to the podcast host, increasingly you're seeing more premium podcast content put behind a paywall. So whether it's advertising or subscription, you know, I just see a lot of runway in this space. I think so, man. And it's like, is it, I think the question for me, is it new revenue or are we displacing revenue? Do you see what I'm saying? So yeah. I think, um, is it money leaking in from the radio business or is it people just throwing new digital dollars into the marketplace that weren't there before? So yeah. I think it's going to be a bit of both. Um, and I think at some point the radio networks are going to start saying, okay, guys, well, what business are we really in? Yeah. And how are we going to play that? Yeah. Um, and I think, for example, you know, if you think about the moments where radio is really key, particularly mornings, yeah? yeah. And you start saying, well, how do people listen? You know, they're in their car. It's Why at home. Be hooked up. Exactly. <laughs> Another thing I have uh, with the podcast business is that it's benefiting because it's hard to arbitrage it. Uh, let me explain. You know, with websites in 2012 and 13, you know, a publisher uh, or a website could create a slideshow. You may spend uh, three or five cents per click for that user. And the user could generate uh, seven cents of advertising revenue on the single visit. And so you would take the spread as, as a profit and then, you know, you could spend uh, a lot of money doing that. Really, I believe, uh, you know, this aspect of the digital advertising business hurt the market where a lot of people were using Facebook to ARB, using Google to ARB, but I believe that hurts advertisers. Then you have the nasty players coming in in terms of, you know, they're going through the outbrain, the rev content, the tabula and other sources, uh, not saying that a lot of these platforms haven't cleaned up their act. As you know, uh, media companies, publishers, websites have played a lot of games uh, with our, but anybody could set up a website. And then, you know, just plugging uh, Google, you you know, you plug in your, your, your ad networks and, and then you start, you know, exploiting the advertising company. And, you know, with podcasts, you have, inefficiencies with analytics in terms of getting real-time information uh you know it's not easy to really uh put together a good podcast where someone's going to listen to it you know for 30 minutes you're going to need someone to to listen for a certain amount of time i think the folks can arb video now you can arb web pages uh but it's harder with podcasting uh I would call it uh, dark money. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, um, for now. Until yeah. <laughs> How would you feel as a buyer? You know, you're at RGA and you're buying banners and the publisher, you know, doesn't really have the, the inventory and they go out and buy traffic for like one cent, very cheap clicks and they get their impressions and they fill your campaign with purchase traffic. You know, Vanity Fair, GQ, they have been caught, at least one of them, buying uh, shady uh, traffic and filling premium advertising campaigns. Newsweek, uh, it was reported the feds came in 
and raided their office and you know allegedly they were caught doing some 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 shady stuff and the feds of course uh came in to look at this stuff but if you're a buyer and the website is buying 80 percent of the traffic to fill the buy that's not a good deal for you uh would it be so harsh you would sue to get your money back if you found out do you know what um I knew when I was um, on the buy side that um, there was a lot of shadiness going on, yeah? So you kind of know that's out there. And even when stuff isn't shady, it could be legit. Yeah. But it might not be your audience. But you don't yeah. know that. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of what I call, I don't know what I call, what is known as an asymmetric market, yeah? So one side knows the truth. The other side doesn't know the truth. Okay? So the publisher in that instance knows it's not quite right for you or it's shady. Or, or something else like that. You just don't know. And then there's millions of publishers. So how on earth do you go making a good decision? It's really hard. Yeah. So what you ha- so you, you can have as many analytical processes at the front end to try and tidy it up. But fundamentally, you're relying on somebody else's information, whether it be a, um, a Comscore or a, a Nielsen data set or some, some other form of um, certification in, in your planning tools. Yeah. But in truth, that doesn't weed that out. You yeah. can't see that looking at Comscore. So the only way you can really deal with this is that I had a couple of policies in place. You can fool me once, but you can't fool me twice. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because I'm not necessarily just buying the inventory for the sake of buying the inventory. I'm buying the inventory to look at the performance of the inventory. That's my back check. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? So if I think that I'm buying an audience that's going to go and buy product X and product X doesn't sell, then you're not getting another chance. You're, you're, you're off my plan. Yeah. Easy to get onto my plan, hard to stay on my plan. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's my first thing. And then the second, which, which basically means that you've got to have really strong analytics in place. And then the second thing is that when you come onto my plan, I'm not going to put all my, you know, the whole wallet down. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm just yeah. going to give you a taster, do a test, see how that works. And then I'm gradually then going to build up over time. And I'm going to be comparing you. Did you ever ask how much of your traffic are you paying for? Uh, did you ever ask, hey, your comm score says you have 30 million unique visitors, this many page views, but how many of those are you paying for? I know of publishers, uh, they would you know, look to exploit buyers who would buy off the Comscore numbers. Oh boy, you know, this, has, this site has a lot of traffic. Uh, but the website owner is just buying the traffic for like one cent, it registers in Comscore, and you know they can uh, sell high and buy low and complete the art. Let me just—I mean, there's a there's a there's a level that you know if you think about your average day, um, at least the day I used to have, I had a lot of stuff I was processing. You know, yeah. I was on multiple platforms, multiple clients, multiple um, you know kind of um, devices. So there's a lot yeah. of complexity in all of that. So your ability to dive deep in any one company is actually pretty limited. You see what I'm saying? So I can't lift the hood up on all of these companies and and do that. That's the first thing. The second thing is, here's the thing. Everybody has audience. (laughs) And it's like overlapping audience. So so it's very rare to find somebody who's got a unique audience that doesn't exist. Yeah, a flavor of ARB on the buy side where like, hey, I don't want to pay a $50 CPM on ESPN, uh, CPM for the audience, $50 per thousand impressions. But I can find that audience uh, somewhere else uh, and pay a lower CPM. And the other thing is that maybe you do get ESPN and then people land on your website, you've cookied them and then you're going to get them through retargeting, yeah? 
Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And, yeah. You know, you're not hitting that way, and then you're you're paying single digit um, CPMs at that point. So I want to talk about total market versus uh, black media. As you know, a lot of big advertising buyers in the marketplace, uh, they're saying, "Hey, look." I'm not putting my money in a black budget. I'm not putting my money in a multicultural budget. I'm not sending money to the black agencies because I can get, you know, you guys on a YouTube buy. I can get you on a general market buy. The demographics are changing. Americans are multicultural now. I don't need to separate my budget. I don't need to segment my budget and put it in the slices. Uh, that's not efficient for me. As you know, money has moved out of the, the black buy box and into the total market box. The white buyers are mostly saying, I don't need to send my money to a black agency like Burrell Communications in Chicago. I don't need to send my money to Uniworld, another black ad agency. Uh, do you think brands are making a big mistake uh, in terms of this total market approach. Yeah, I think it's a bullshit argument, man. Complete bullshit. Yeah, because if, think about it. Um, the world isn't moving to broader and broader media. The world is moving towards tighter and tighter audiences, more and more segmentation and targeting and combinations of the two. So, for example, how many briefs do I see? I want to target millennials. I want to target boomers. I want to target... Um, this specific segment, not give me the whole of America. So why all of a sudden then when it comes to, you know, a, a black audience or increasingly a Hispanic audience, because we own yeah. Telemundo, um, the why all of a sudden that doesn't target and doesn't count anymore. And it does count. If it counts for the rest of that, then it counts for this as well. So um, the issue is, is that, you know, you, you, are you going to hit millennials with the same message you're hitting um, boomers with or, or you know um, you know people post retirement no you're yeah. not you're not a big fan of uh, total market you don't think there's a lot of logic in it no I think it's a good business I think it's a good business I think there are certain brands who at some point don't need to make a distinction in their advertising and they need to reach the whole of the country that's great you have to do that yeah but you don't do that and not do other stuff so for example in your whole marketplace, there are going to be certain segments that are just really important to you as well, yeah? Yeah. So why don't you heavy up on those audiences? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Particularly if an audience, so for example, if the, you know, you have certain products that do really well amongst African-Americans or Hispanics or whatever, then put a bet on that audience. And not only just, don't just put your dollars there, um, do custom creative. Talk to them in a language and in a way that they feel, that feels familiar with them and then show them, signal to them that you give a damn. Signal to them that you're in their camp. That's the thing that I think people are looking for when you're advertising those titles. So I talked to a NASDAQ-listed uh, CEO brother, Alfred Liggins, the CEO of Urban One, and he said, uh, well, first, uh, they do about $700 million a year in revenue across uh, radio, TV, and digital. But he said Facebook never reached out to them about any type of discussion, you know, partnership on content, marketing, nothing. He said they just never reached out. But, you know, what I do know, me being in the market, is they were looking at picking off his sales team. Another, you know, industry insider shared with me that they were developing a push to go take the Burrell and multicultural money. Uh, so internally within Facebook, they wanted to go out and get the black money, the Hispanic money, too. 
uh, you know, the, the mainstream total market pilot was just not enough. Uh, obviously, you know, media, the media business is being crushed in general by the duopoly of Facebook and Google, uh, you know, running over more and more stuff. Uh, you know, do you think they have a, a responsibility to think about how they could restructure our society on so many different uh, levels? Uh, how can they be contributing to, you know, inequality at scale where all these black ad agencies, all these black media companies, they don't have, you know, any money. Banks don't want to lend to them. They can't invest. Google and, and, and Facebook. Uh, are going after the little dollars that are left in this kind of black space. Facebook would say is, hey, that's not our business. This is capitalism, baby. You know, the, the big wallet wins. Do you feel that they have any responsibility? If black media companies were to go bankrupt across the board, major media companies are failing too. Uh, but if Facebook says, they want the black salespeople from the black media companies. I'm going to offer them a higher check. I'm going to start going to Burrell and tell them that their shit sucks and Facebook is better. I want that money. Do you think they have you know, any responsibilities as a corporate actor? I'm going to answer that in two parts. I think um, the, so, so my answer is yes. <laughs> um, but I think a company is always going to be a company. Every guy is looking for the next dollar. We know that that ain't going to change. It doesn't mind if you are Baidu in China and then there is a, some, a province of publishers somewhere. You're going to be looking to, to take that cake. But here's the catch with that. Okay, here's the. Okay, so here's my problem with this with, is that I believe in this, and I, I think this isn't just specific to black media, I think this is specific to almost every walk of life right now. And it's not just a thing in media. I think it's a thing across the digital economy, which is to say this. I feel right now, particularly with the way that the technology is changing our society, that these big digital platforms now need to start behaving and exhibiting different forms of corporate citizenship. Do you so see what I'm saying? Actors. Exactly. And there's like, you're getting to a point. Like, if you think about Uber and the and the driving economy, it's like you have a responsibility to those drivers. Yeah. You have a responsibility to society in general for the safety. There's all sorts of stuff. You, you're impacting yeah. the world in ways that you couldn't even see. So when you see it, do yeah. something about it. I would say when you're at the scale of a Google and Facebook, the society can't afford to wait and see you know, what they need, which risk management uh, departments uh, are working, independent folks to, they need to be paying independent folks to start thinking about wh what am I doing uh, at this massive scale around the world in terms of how I'm going after my profits, you know, trying to hit next quarter's earnings, all the products that we're creating, how could our products and the way we're going about things at, at this massive scale how could it kill people? How could it impact governments and elections? How could it impact the kids of the world? You know, if someone or the people get hacked and someone uses all the data that we're gathering across these areas, what could that mean? What could people do with it? To me, from a regulatory standpoint, you need a, uh, a possible kind of separate department in the government to look at uh, this stuff within big tech 
Before you have the digital equivalent of a Lehman Brothers collapse, a Bear Stearns collapse, uh, a financial crisis, or a data crisis. And so we need to be, you know, looking ahead and policing these institutions uh, that are just, you know, crazy, fanatically going after money. Move, hey, we're, you know, we're moving fast. We're breaking things. We don't care. We just got to get this money. These people and their sick minds in Silicon Valley specifically, they need to be policed. And it's only going to get more and more important that we get up ahead of this. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? And you talked about finance a second ago with the Bear Stearns and the Lehmans. Yeah? The regulators were always like five steps behind you. Yeah. They're always five steps behind. Yeah. And it's like, so as we become more dependent on this, um, as we automate our societies and we become more dependent on these systems, they need to be looking at this because this is the difference maybe between my point of view and your point of view is that I don't believe there's a lot of people who are going to self control themselves in that way organizationally. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like if they see that dollar there, they're going to go and take but there's, it. But <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I think there are degrees. Uh, I see you know, significant delta between the culture of Google and Facebook. I don't think, uh, you know, any platform uh, is, you know, goody goody. It, you know, it goes to how the, the difference between Google and Facebook, it goes to how Facebook was created. And I believe, uh, you know, Zuckerberg is a psychopath. Uh, in terms of when you look at how he started Facebook, Someone hired him to to create a product. You know, he ended up taking the idea. He was a contractor, independent contractor. He took the idea, ended up paying them a lot of money in Facebook stock in terms of a settlement. And then, you know, he cheats his uh, one of the co-founders, uh, Eduardo uh, Saverin, and he ends up paying him billions of dollars worth of uh, Facebook uh, uh, stock in a legal segment, settlement. Uh, so they have him on email and chat trying to shortchange his co-founder in terms of his equity in the company. Eduardo Saverin settled and ended up getting over a billion dollars. So early on, you're, you're starting to see funny stuff from this kid, right? And I don't think he has a kind of adequate connectivity human connectivity i believe last year or the year before that he went across america uh saying that he wants to better understand the country and the people kind of acknowledging it seems like a, a, a an extreme detachment i just don't think he can be you know the chief risk officer uh if facebook is starting to to act like it's more of a government entity in terms of influence. So I agree with you there. And I, here's my thing. I think there's there's room for regulation. There has to be regulation, not just on the nature. Because half of these companies are it's pretty monopolistic right now. Yeah, but between the duopoly. So I feel we need to be looking at that. I feel we need to be looking at things like um, employment, you know, as we, not, not, not pertaining to the media companies, but just automation in general. So how is the rest of this? How, how are we going to handle the fact that millions of people will not have a chance to work in the future? You know, how are we going to fund that? You know, what's the government doing about it? I don't see anything happening. Yeah. Um, I also want to better understand, um, and this is flipping a bit, because I feel if it isn't Facebook, if, if, if somebody can come and eat your lunch right now, 
then it, um, it doesn't matter whether it's Facebook or Google. So what I would say to the people who own these black media companies is that, okay, well, what's our game plan? What's your game plan? No organization. That's what I'm trying to say. Is that you can't, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, look, so if, if you're, lo- you know, are you putting engineers on the table, yeah. on the floor? Are you, what's your go-to-market? What's your pricing strategy? Yes, none of them have t- yeah. talked to me. None of them in the whole yeah. time I've been here. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah you know what I mean? It was yeah. like, so what I'm saying here is like, are they, got, are they staffing right? Okay, how are you, I mean, don't get me wrong, is that how are you going to hold on to your staff? And I'm saying, and I know this easy to say, hard to do, but what I'm saying is, is that if somebody can come and take that, we got to be figuring out how do we, um, you know, exactly. Yeah. And then let me just add to that as well. And I'll just say as well, then it's like, what is the audience? Why is the audience so flaky? Why is the audience, you know, why even you know these publishers have been able to gain true loyalty amongst their? I think the numbers are good, but if you hold your audience. And I think there's something else going on in the society right now. Obviously, I'm new to America, yeah. but what I'm saying here is that the the, the 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 you know the publishers like Essence and Ebony back in the day, they they had it on lock. No one, yeah. you know, if you think about their heyday, they had the audiences on lock. And I think a lot of that was to do with identity. And I'm saying now identity is so much more fluid. I feel some of these publishers haven't moved at the times so to hold on to that. For sure, uh, I would hold black media accountable, broadly speaking, on that front. But it would go back to the reason why a lot of the users are not sticky, right? So Google and Facebook, they have, you know, folks locked in to their their big platforms. Obviously, they have big wallets to roll out very interesting products. Uh, A lot of the growth is, you know, product and, you know, innovation uh, that's financed by really big wallets out of Silicon Valley. We know that. Uh, And so we have seen the audiences going to places where it's going to be efficient to connect in places where I can get really, really good product. I'm just saying that it's a big resource component that determines how sticky your platform is in terms of David and Goliath, uh, the battle between the David and Goliaths out there in terms of building products. Uh, And hey, all the cool kids are already over there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I agree with you. It's a resource issue, but I also think there's also something else that's going on, I think, as well, which is like, you can have a, a website, a publishing business, and it's only, I've got a, a cup of water in front of me here, whose only job is to talk about cups of water. Yeah. And if you think about your world in a global level, all of a sudden you're talking about scale. Do you see what I'm saying? And I feel too much of... The publishers here once they get I mean, that's not what you did because you were you were out in the motherland every other day, you know, you 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 had a global ambition. A lot of the I mean, I'm from the UK, you know, there's a big black population over there. I was on Bossip from back in the day, you know I was one of the yeah. <laughs> early I used to I used to you know, um but I think a lot of these publishers, they they their get out of jail card is by starting to think globally and not been so narrow cast. And I think a lot of the, some of these people haven't traveled. They didn't know about the other communities, the diaspora around the world. They didn't know about kind of the new middle classes emerging around yeah. the world. Are you saying that from an uh, intellect and content perspective? Uh, are you more, you know, weighting that towards monetization? Because what I would say is, you know, you can travel and do all this stuff, but the monetization overseas is not, really there uh in a lot of places that you would think 
you know, there's a, a huge opportunity. I can, you know, get website or, or platform traffic in Nigeria. You know, I can roll out a content platform in India and get traffic. And the monetization infrastructure is uh, pretty low, uh, relatively speaking. Yeah. I mean, what I'm playing out here is this idea that you're fighting it's David and Goliath and you're always going to be David in this domestic market. Yeah. And I'm saying, so I agree with you. Yes, you can get the traffic. Um, I would then say to say you're like 60% there. You see what I'm saying? Even yeah. if you can't, even, I mean, like even most big global marketers, most big global publishers, there's a disproportionate amount of their revenues coming from the US, yeah? Disproportionate. Yeah. That ain't small change. And I'm saying, are these publishers truly taking a global view and aggregating the black international community in all its forms, whether it be Africa, Europe? Sure. Do you see what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, Even yeah. South America and connecting everybody up together. And I'm saying, I'm, I'm yeah, interested. I haven't yeah, seen that thing yet. And yeah. I'm just saying, so, and I'm saying, and then you start getting economies of scale, yeah? Because you start saying, okay, well, I can publish. This is what Netflix is doing, yes? Yeah? So Netflix is making stuff here repurposing it and pushing it out in Australia or doing stuff in India and pushing it out. I'm even seeing, even in Nigeria. Who's, who's connecting the global black community? That's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, and I'm saying, and I'm saying, and I think then you can have one central editorial team, local sales team, some local translation type teams, you know what I mean? Who start to think about it in that sense. I think that that's waiting to be done, man. Back to corporate responsibility. Recently in the media, a reputable, highly respected uh, Saudi Arabian journalist who worked at the Washington Post, you know, he was a critic of uh, uh, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. He goes to Instable to handle something related to, you know, getting married, some paperwork. So he's in the, the Saudi uh, consulate in Turkey, and the reports from the Turkish officials is that he never came out. You know, he was murdered by the Saudis, and now information is coming out where, you know, a group, a hit team, a 15-member hit team flew into uh, Istanbul to kill him uh, on two private jets, two PJs. This critic was well-known in, in the United States, uh, of course, he works for the Washington Post. He's murdered. So MBS, at least from my perspective, he's deeply problematic, uh, you know, ethically uh, in terms of the war, uh, ethically and morally in terms of his war in Yemen, in terms of backing away from being a you know defender of the Palestinian cause, aligning with Netanyahu. He's doing... A lot of stuff where some people are like, hey, what's going on? But Mark Zuckerberg, he's connected to MBS. He took, you know, MBS on a tour around Facebook, you know, around Silicon Valley. Joel Kaplan, who is best friends with now the Supreme Justice Kavanaugh, was uh, seen with uh, MBS. Joel Kaplan is uh, one of the chief legal minds and lobbyists uh, within Facebook. Of course, Jared Kushner is connected to MBS. For a lot of folks, you know, MBS, Saudi Arabia, these people represent, you know, values that are that are very problematic. Now it looks like they're going around, you know, murdering journalists, uh, journalists who are U.S. residents. They already had cracked down on media, uh, of course, out there, but now it looks like they've uh, they've just gone 
on and sent the hit squad, a 15-member hit squad, to Turkey. Uh, people in Silicon Valley, they're starting to question Google uh, in terms of, you know, what are you doing? Why are we making these products for the government who are playing a part with separate, separating parents from their children? And so now people are waking up uh, to the fact uh, that big tech in Silicon Valley is a political establishment. Uh, these guys are in the bed with uh, Justice Kavanaugh uh, in terms of lobbying. Joel uh, Kaplan is the chief lobbyist at Facebook, and they hired him because of his connection with Republicans. Facebook and Google, they've been very effective at lobbying, you know, where there's no regulation. Uh, it's not a coincidence that over the past 10 years on the run-up of big tech, that you haven't had really thoughtful regulation on this industry in Silicon Valley. Uh, a large part of that is due to the aggressive lobbying and money that's coming out of Silicon Valley. Do you think, uh, and let's say the facts prove that MBS sent a 15-member hit team to kill a journalist who was advocating for more democracy in Saudi Arabia, do you think the employees at Facebook, for example, should be mad are angry at Zuckerberg for doing business for doing business and giggling with the guy like this, or do you think, hey, this stuff is separate? He's head of state. There's nothing wrong with that. We're not, you know, judging here. Like if you worked at Facebook and let's say this guy sent a hit team to go kill a journalist from the Washington Post, and you saw your CEO just giggling and doing business because they want business from the people in Saudi Arabia. You know, it's not like it's just. Mark Zuckerberg, MBS is over at Google. You know, he's shaking hands with Jack Dorsey at Twitter. He's in the bed with Silicon Valley. They they really bow down to his money and power. You know, they roll out the carpet for him when he comes out there. So yeah, I, I I mean, here's my view about this. In the in the 30s and in the 40s, um, Germany, you have Hitler, you have the Nazi Party, and then there were you know the parts of corporate America that were very friendly with that um, administration. Yeah. And you look back at that, and these companies, obviously some of them have hidden some of this history, and they look back at it with shame, yeah? So there isn't, there isn't anything new about corporate interest and corrupt and amoral governments getting together. So that's nothing new. What I would say that I think is slightly different from your point of view, there's a whole thing about Saudi Arabia and where it's at, basically, but... Um, which we can dive into a little bit. But I think my general feeling about the Silicon Valley population is that they're more left-leaning. In fact, the right have been the ones complaining about the Googles, the Facebook. And if you think about it, um, if you remember when the Muslim ban happened, um, the, the Google executive team, pretty much Silicon Valley unanimously came out against it. Okay, so... And, you know, these people are based in California. You know, these people are pro-immigration, pro-open pro markets and free markets. This kind of is almost the opposite of kind of what the right-wing establishment feels like right now. So I think they're definitely more left-oriented. So I think what happens, though, and this is the same thing of Google, yeah. is that you might have that... As it goes back to this whole thing about we, we're not escaping the human condition. So if somebody at some point has to say, am I going to do what I believe in or am I going to get paid? And I think yeah, that's, know, where, <laughs> that's where it comes down to. The right and left doesn't help. In Facebook's case, I believe that their God is money. Uh, you know, and if your God is money, 
you know, you start taking on a posture where we don't take sides. It doesn't matter if it's Hitler. It doesn't matter if it's MBS. Uh, we don't care if it's Jim Jones. You know, if there's a dollar to be made, even with blood on it, we're taking that money. We're not looking to be judges of, you know, murder, you know, racism, oppression. We're not judging. We just want the money from both sides. And so, you know, there's a hesitancy to pick sides. So if that's your type of mindset, you know, you're going to have a, uh, a Peter Thiel uh, on the right. You know, you're going to have a Joel Kaplan on the right. You're going to push out Sheryl Sandberg out left. You're going to push out Mark Zuckerberg out left. Uh, you know, there's no real kind of consistent political stream our cohesive political point of view from the for, from the company. You know, the only thing that's consistent is a fanaticism for greed and power and growth. Uh, that's the the kind of sick religion uh, uh, that I see. That's the fundamental, yeah, that's, and that's yeah. and I, and I think I mean I, I mentioned the 1930s and 40s. Not to say that um, the Saudi king or whatever is the equivalent of Hitler, but what I'm saying here is that we are. As individuals, however high up or low down we are, in situations every day where we've got to make a moral choice about what we believe in, yeah? And about, yeah. are we going to keep true to ourselves? Or are we going to try and take the next dollar? And, and, and I generally feel, particularly when it comes to stuff that has a consequence on people's lives, yeah. life or death, then I'm, you know, if it's about taxation, you know, maybe we can yeah. talk about that. But if it's about somebody living or dying, I think I want to stay on the right side of that. In terms you know of I mean? the potential to... backlash, uh, if you did work at a Facebook or a Google, would you be protesting with some of these employees that are protesting about some of these uh, issues out there uh, in Silicon Valley? It's difficult to say if I don't work yeah. there and I don't it's know like, what the yeah, culture is. I'd like, to, I'd like to think I would. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. If someone said to me, is that something you would do? I, I think my answer instinctively is yes. Whether I do it, I don't know, but I'd like to think I would do it. Do you know what I mean? Regardless of what the consequences is, what I mean by that. Before we close out, I want to talk to you about your teaching at Columbia University. What inspired you to take your real world experience uh, and want to go out there and teach students? Do you know what? It, was, it wasn't like a selfless act. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. an act of self-interest. Yeah. And what it is that I liked about it is I have this thing. So, you know, I'm a black guy in the advertising business, always was. Um, not many of me. And I always felt, and I had this philosophy always of this idea, I call it objective difference. You know, the higher up you get in the industry, the less it is you're able to distinguish between people. And what then starts to happen is that people get better positions based on the relationships. If you don't have those relationships, you're not going to get the better positions. Yeah. Unless you know something that no one else knows. <laughs> yeah. And that's why I call objective difference. It was about mastering things that people didn't know. And so I believed about five years ago, six years ago, that data science was going to be like a big thing that differentiated people in, you know, in this business. And yeah. so I started hiring people from Columbia. I started digging into this, working with that department there. Um, myself started to acquire uh, and internalize a lot of this knowledge. And I actually started to know a lot about it. Um, and I started to know about how all the different things worked, how different algorithms were built. I wasn't an engineer by training, um, but I knew how to work with them really well. And so I started saying to myself, oh great, this is really good. How do I consolidate that? How do I signal to the world I know about this stuff? And how do I keep my knowledge fresh? 
Because what I have to do is every semester I have to sit down and say, okay, what, what am I going to say that's interesting enough for 30 or 40 master's students in engineering? And I have to reinvent a curriculum each semester. And yeah. it forces me to keep the top of my game. So that's kind of why I did it. Um, and there have been times where I'm like, oh man, it's Monday night, it's late. Yeah. I don't know if I want to do this, but yeah. then I keep going. When I look at your career, it's obvious you deal with strategy. It reads to me as an observer, your path has been very strategic. Let me explain. Uh, my memory is that I was reading articles within the digital media uh, industry, advertising industry, ad age, digiday, and I started to see your name pop up. You know, your name was a little different. I was like, cool, man. You know, this guy, you know, seems to be from Nigeria. You know, he's a heavyweight in the industry. This is really interesting. So I look you up. I may have read five articles where you were quoted. When it came time uh, where I saw you at a programmatic advertising uh, conference in Austin, my interest in terms of walking up to you was based on your PR profile, you know, kind of you being quoted in the media. When these publications were asking you for quotes, is that, was that something strategic? Uh, were you involved in that or was it, you know, uh, purely, you know, organic? Full transparency, you're more pushing it, yeah. and then sometimes so, they're yeah, pulling. So I was thinking it was a strategic. Like, yeah, yeah. I gotta get my, I gotta get my name out there. Oh no, it wasn't this, no, it wasn't necessarily about me getting my name out there. It was more to do with like when you're in an agency environment, um, the agencies that do well tend to be the agencies that have the highest profile. Yeah. And if you've got, how do you get a high profile? You have to have an opinion on something, <laughs> and yeah. so and the journalists are not going to quote you if you haven't got an interesting or different opinion. So agencies, or at least good agencies, um, do spend quite a bit of time thinking about how they become quotable by putting out interesting stories, having journalists that they, they work with on specific topics. And so I started to really focus on you know, machine learning, the digital ecosystem, social media, the power of influence, programmatic, some of these topics that at the time were still kind of like still still immature they were still evolving so I became a voice in that space and yeah. that was really about really trying to drive the visibility of my team you know around the world that was working on RGA so and the journalists I mean you you know you saw stuff but the amount of stuff you do in order for that little bit to get out because <laughs> yeah. you can do tons of interviews they don't all get out there into the public space so so keeping on top of stuff and keeping ahead of the marketplace and having a helicopter view is part of what is, is necessary. And that goes back to my idea of objective difference, yeah? Yeah. It's like, you need to know shit that nobody else knows. <laughs> Your career started in the UK. You know, what has really helped you differentiate yourself and rise up in the corporate ranks in the United States? It's interesting, because I see there's a lot of people here from the UK, and um, particularly in strategy, because this, a lot of the original strategy business was formed in the UK. So a lot of so people used to joke in the industry, do you need to have an accent to have this job? Yeah. Have a strategy guy. And and they'll say, Oh, it's because of the accent. Do you know what I mean? I've heard people say that to me. Do people say, assume well, you're smarter because you have a British accent? Do you know what they say? You know, because like being British, having a British accent maybe gives you 20 more IQ points. And that's about being yeah. black takes away 30. So, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's perception wise. Yeah, 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 you see yeah. what I'm saying? So I lost in the game. So, but, um, but seriously, um, I think for me, I think the advantage of America versus the UK is that this is just a bigger sandbox. You know what I mean? There's just so much more out here you can do. Um, 
the UK is centralized in London. It's a smaller market. One person comes in, one has to go out. This is growing at a faster pace. So the opportunities and the scale is bigger. Um, so I would say part of it is that I think I chose the right businesses, you know, the right areas to focus on. I made the right bets around yeah, the knowledge. Exactly. I'm always thinking about it, what's the next big thing. It sounds like that came from a big thirst and curiosity to read about your market. Also knowing I ain't got a safety net. Yeah. <laughs> so I know I just got to keep hustling just to keep ahead and I got to work a little bit harder than everybody else. And so, yeah, I'm always reading. I'm always thinking about what's next. I'm always... You know, every time we meet, we're just chatting about where's the world going and that kind of yeah. stuff. So I have that mindset and it's a it's a it's a kind of a struggle mindset. You know, I was in Mumbai, India uh, last year uh, and an Indian asked me uh, bluntly, uh, he said, are Americans lazy? I guess that was the perception from his perspective in Mumbai. I don't know how far and deep that goes, but the perception compared uh, to the United States. You know, when you come here from London, uh, did you perceive a lot of us in America being complacent? Not, not compared to London. I think London's yeah. way no, more no, relaxed. No, no, compared to Nigeria. Nigeria. <laughs> oh yeah, Nigerians are like, what are those guys doing over there, man? You know, yeah. put me on a plane. So no, I mean, if you compare to London, I think the work-life balance is, uh, is yeah. more balanced. Yeah, I misspoke there. Yeah, uh, but but, no, but if you go yeah. to you know, you know, there's a quote. If you know, was it? If you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. But you can't make it in Lagos. Yeah. <laughs> if you make it in New York, that doesn't mean you're gonna make it in Lagos. I can tell you that right now. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> that just means you can land. Yeah. You know, because you got hustled hundred times harder. Yeah. Um, over there before you you, you could you could be successful. Successful. So you know what I mean? So it's more of that uh, uh, that Nigerianness. That I think that's more at the core of it for me. Yeah. It's just kind of like, and also just knowing that I, I need to make it work. And also, yeah. I you know, I ain't got the support network. I ain't got any of the resources that other There's people no have got. To fall back no, on I just got to do it, man. I got to do it. Yeah. And so I think you know, it's like um, there's a Frederick Douglass quote I like, which is a like, you know, um, without struggle, there's no progress. Do you know what I mean? It is all about the struggle. and then, But it's not just about the struggle. Sorry, let me take that back. It's also about the story. What story are you telling yourself in your head about who you are? Do you know what I mean? And about what you're about. And so I brand myself. I talk to myself in the sense that I'm like, okay, I am my thing, my thing, my angle is about I'm going to discover new ideas and push into the hardest spaces. Because not, not everyone wants to go into those spaces and that's where I'm going to specialize in. So when everyone was struggling with around the idea of data and digital coming together and people didn't really know the answer to that, I dove into that. When everyone's thinking about multi-screen and how you manage all of that, I dove into that, which is what led me to NBC Universal. I'm now thinking of other things, you know, beyond that. I'm thinking about AR and VR. I'm thinking about entertainment and content and how they all synchronize together. So I want to do those things that are harder because fewer people can do those things. Yeah. And that's the story I tell myself and I'm willing to put the time and effort into making it happen. I want to thank uh, Tony for coming on the show. Oh, anytime, man. Oh. Uh, where can people check you out online? Um, you can find me on Twitter. That's the yeah. place I always respond. AFIC, AFIC at, uh, AFIC, um, at Twitter, basically. A-E-F-F-I-K. That's my handle. All right, thanks for coming on the show. Anytime. Let's go. 
thanks everybody for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamal and Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.